The scripture reading for today comes from Acts chapter 8, verses 2 through 25. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city, and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed." Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You can be seated, and good morning again. Welcome to New Life Fremont. My name is Kevin, if I haven't had a chance to meet any of you yet. We are continuing our sermon series through the book of Acts called The World Turned Upside Down. Wherever the apostles go, they turn things upside down. Wherever those who are fleeing persecution go, they turn things upside down. Wherever the gospel message goes, it turns things upside down. And today's passage is no exception. Here in chapter 8 of Acts, uh, we see the gospel message making its way to Samaria. Up until now in Acts, uh, we've been focused exclusively on Jerusalem. But now we have turned the corner to Samaria, and it's in Samaria now being re- the gospel is being received. This is stage two of the book of Acts, from Jerusalem to all Judea and Samaria. And so we're going to look a little more closely at this story of the gospel going to Samaria. 
uh, when Samaria receives the gospel, and we'll kind of use it as a paradigm for what sorts of things happen whenever the gospel enters into a new community. Because when the gospel begins to be received somewhere, at least three things happened, which are going to be our points today. Joy, conversion, and correction. When the gospel begins to be received somewhere, we can expect to see joy, conversion, and correction. And so let's begin with our first point, joy. You know, one of the challenges of preaching uh, the sermon this week and the sermon last week, is that all these scenes are very closely connected. And so our passage today directly flows from what we talked about last week, the stoning of Stephen and the great persecution of the church in Jerusalem. And so if you'll remember, uh, Stephen is one of the six Hellenist Jews who is appointed as sort of a deacon. And uh, he's brought in front of the council— Uh, where he gives this massive speech pointing out how Israel has a history of rejecting its deliverers. The deliverers that God sends them, they tend to reject, and they're at risk at doing it once again with the rejection of Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And the council does not like this speech, and so they stone Stephen, and they begin persecuting the entire church in Jerusalem. And that's where our passage picks up. Verse 2 says that they buried Stephen and had great lamentation over him. Verse 3 says that Saul, who was the Apostle Paul, Saul played a major role in the persecuting of the church in Jerusalem. He would enter house after house. He would drag off men and women and put them in prison. And so there's this persecution starting, and the persecution scatters Jesus' followers throughout Judea and Samaria, uh, except for the apostles, um, From last week's text, chapter 8, verse 1, it's clear that the apostles actually stay in Jerusalem, but many, many of Jesus' followers are scattered. And that's the context that brings us to verses uh, verses 4 through 8 of our passage. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. Unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Jesus' followers are scattered all over. And one example of a scattered follower is Philip. And Philip proclaimed Christ in Samaria, and everyone there paid attention to Philip. Unclean spirits came out of people. There were healings of the paralyzed and the lame in Samaria, and so there was much joy because of Philip's ministry there. And I want to draw your attention to a few things. First, the people who were scattered, Philip included, were scattered because they were fleeing persecution. They're like refugees. They're like asylum seekers. They're running for their lives, essentially. And yet, when they get to a safer city, they have an immediate impact there. You know, when we think of refugees or someone fleeing persecution, we sort of assume that once they get to safety, all they're going to do is receive help and aid. We don't really expect them to contribute much, at least not right away. In a lot of ways, that's good. You know, remember from a few weeks ago, God cares about the sojourner among you. We should care and lift burdens from people fleeing persecution. But it's an interesting juxtaposition here. Philip, fleeing persecution, arrives in Samaria, 
And, you know, people probably helped him out, gave him a place to stay, food. They met other basic needs. But Philip immediately is like, I'm actually here primarily to give, not receive. I'm here primarily to bless, not be blessed. You know, yes, I'm fleeing pain and suffering and persecution, but I'm here to bring joy, to bring good news of great joy, which comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, some of us may think that because we're going through something difficult, because we're struggling, because we're suffering from something, that we don't really have anything to offer. You know, I'm not in a place to share my faith. I'm not in a position to serve. I'm not in a position to bring others joy. I've got my own problems right now. And obviously there's a certain logic to that. And the last thing I want to do is add burdens to anyone feeling overburdened already. But the story of the Jerusalem Christians fleeing persecution and still sharing the gospel and bringing joy wherever they go sort of turns our logic upside down, right? You know, normally we don't expect anything of those who are hurting or maybe even from ourselves when we're hurting. But the gospel flips that upside down and says, actually, those who are suffering are best positioned to bring others joy, true joy, Not ease and comfort and happiness, but true joy, because those who suffer see joy more clearly. They understand it. They get it. They can contrast it to how life, how difficult life can get. And so it's actually those who are suffering that are best positioned to bring others joy. So Philip comes to Samaria and starts sharing the gospel message and healing people, and they're probably like, Wait, aren't you fleeing persecution? Aren't you hurting? Aren't you suffering? Where are you finding the strength to persevere? Why are you trying to help us so much? What's different about you, Philip? You know, the the pump is primed for him to share the good news of Jesus. The Samaritans want what he has. If you're in Christ, your suffering, your pain, your weakness They aren't liabilities to your ability to minister. They're assets. They're part of your story. They're part of Jesus's story. They allow you to say, look what Jesus has done. Look what Jesus can do with someone hurting like me, with someone weak like me. So that's the first thing I want you to see. It's the persecuted, the hurting, the suffering, who bring the joy of the gospel to others in our passage at Acts. Second thing to see here. Do you remember who Philip is? Is Philip an apostle? No, Philip's not an apostle. He's one of the Hellenist Jews, like Stephen, who was appointed in Acts 6 to care for the widows. You know, if anything, he's more like a deacon, a mercy ministry lay leader. He's not a pastor. He's not an elder. He's not an apostle. He's a lay leader whose appointment was to mercy ministry, not actually even ministry of the word. And, you know, that term lay just means non-clergy. You know, I, as a pastor, am clergy. You are lay people as non-pastors. You know, together you're referred to as the laity. And so Philip is part of the laity. He is a lay church leader. And so what's he doing here? He's doing both ministry of mercy and ministry of word. He's doing mercy ministry and the healings, but also clearly ministry of word. It says in verse 5 that he proclaimed to them the Christ. You know, he's doing evangelism. And remember, there are no apostles in Samaria. They stayed in Jerusalem. 
when everyone else was being persecuted and scattered, the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. And so the gospel message, the healings, the joy that's come to Samaria, it hasn't come through professional Christians. It's come through the laity, the non-clergy, people just like you. You know, do you ever find yourself thinking, oh, I could never share my faith. I, I couldn't do evangelism with my non-believing neighbors or friends or family, whatever. But if I could just bring them to church with me, or if they would talk to a pastor, then that's how they could be converted. That's the type of evangelism that could work in their life. I want a professional Christian to do it, because I could never. And look, I'm happy to talk with anyone you want me to talk about Christ with, if they are willing. I'll take that appointment any day. But I want you to know that you are supremely better situated to share the gospel with people you know than I am or any pastor is. You know, your neighbors and friends, they expect me to think the gospel is the most important thing in the world that changes everything. It's my job. I have to or don't get paid. They're going to be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course you say that. You're a pastor. You have to. So a lot of times, you know, I or other pastors don't have as much influence. But what if you, just your average churchgoer, what if you think that the gospel changes everything and that it's the most important message in the world? What if it's even changed your life? What if your neighbors and friends and families could see and understand how Jesus has changed you? Well, now we're talking. That's a pretty powerful testimony. That could be just compelling enough for someone to give Christianity a look. So what we see here in Acts 8 is that it's the laity, lay Christians, not the clergy, the laity who are bringing the gospel message and joy to Samaria, people just like you. And then finally, the third thing I want to point out in this uh, part of the passage, uh, verse 8 says that there was much joy in the city, Uh, much joy in Samaria. It doesn't say that there was much joy in the Christians or much joy in the converts. It says there was much joy in the city, the whole place. You know, the presence of Christians, the ministry of the Christians brought joy to the entire city. Whether people believed them or not, there was joy just because of their presence, because Christianity is a religion of joy. It's a faith of joy, and so Christians should be people of joy. And that's actually the key to the two previous observations. Why would those who are fleeing persecution, who had probably lost everything, why would they be the ones doing ministry in Samaria? Because they had joy. Joy that was deeper than their suffering. Joy that was a salve to their pain. Joy from knowing that their current circumstances were temporary, but they had hope and a future that was eternal. Why was it the laity and not the clergy, but the laity who were evangelizing in Samaria? Because they had joy. They were eager to share who Jesus was and what he had done for them. They couldn't help it. It was an overflow of their joy. And joyful people tend to be contagious. They make those around them joyful also. You know, even people who might not believe the same things yet. They, they lift people's eyes to the possibility of greater realities. There's, there's a common grace to the joy of Christians. Even if we're among people who don't believe the same things as us, they will still be drawn to things like graciousness or mercy or justice or patience, gentleness, love— and joy. Do you have 
joy. And if not, I don't want to be alarmist, but if not, it's serious. You know, joy is a logical response to the gospel. If you really believe in what Jesus has done for you and will continue to do for you, how could that not produce at least some joy, at least some of the time? You know, if you find yourself rarely or never experiencing joy in Christ, it's possible you don't truly believe. Or if you do, you're possibly not preaching the gospel to yourself consistently or hearing, putting yourself in a position to hear the gospel consistently. Hearing the gospel, being reminded of the gospel, embracing the gospel should produce some joy. You know, maybe you need to, you know, process some questions. Why, why are you even a Christian? What brought you to faith in the first place? You know, what, if anything, about what Jesus, what Jesus has done for you is real in your life? The gospel turns things upside down, including you. What changed for you because of Christ? What has he turned upside down in your life? What have you left behind that was worthless? What have you turned toward and embraced now that brings joy? And that's going to take us now to our second point, conversion. When I was in middle school and high school, I was a runner, a distance runner. I ran cross-country and track. Uh, I would participate in 5Ks. I even, up through college, participated in a couple half marathons. But later on in adulthood, as you all know, I discovered cycling. And let me tell you, I will never run again. I honestly don't know why I ever did. All the sore joints, all the pain in my ankles and my knees— you know, some people will even say that running is sort of like a trauma to your body each and every time you do it. And so I'm done with running. I have traded my short shorts for spandex. I have converted to cycling. I've had a conversion experience, and I'm never turning back. In our passage, we read about a conversion from one thing to another that happens in Samaria. In verses 9 through 11, we read that there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great, and they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest. And they said, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. And it's interesting what they say in verse 10. This man is the power of God that is called great. Uh, he's not, obviously. He's just a magician, but he had captivated everyone in Samaria. He had said that he himself was somebody great, and everybody in Samaria agreed. They were amazed by Simon the magician and his magic, and they had been for a long time, to the point that he's basically like a god to them, you could say, a prophet at the very least. You know, there is one show in Samaria, and it's Simon the magician. But then Philip comes to town. Verse 12, but when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Philip comes to town, and he preaches the gospel of Jesus, and many people believe, and they get baptized. They convert. They have a conversion experience. They used to be followers, you could say, of Simon the magician, but now they have turned away from treating Simon as if he were God, and they are following Jesus. They believe that Jesus 
was truly God. Not Simon, Jesus. They had a conversion. And I appreciate that this passage makes it clear that the people were all uh, paying attention or following, believing in, whatever word you want to use. They, they were all following Simon the magician before. And then upon hearing the gospel preached by Philip, they turned away from Simon and toward Jesus. They converted. Now, I appreciate how explicit this turning from one person to another is because that's the reality of all conversion. You know, we might like to think that it's possible to be neutral, like somebody could just believe in nothing and then become a Christian, or, you know, we might think of agnosticism or atheism as a sort of neutrality, believing in nothing or no one, but the reality is that not even agnosticism is neutral. It's impossible to be neutral. We all have to have faith in something. Uh, could be even just our own ability to reason. Uh, could be trusting in the authority of someone else. Like Stephen Hawking says that because of theoretical physicists, physics and cosmology, it's impossible for there to be a creator. Whatever, that's still a faith in him and his authority, his academic authority or whatever. And so none of us can truly be neutral. We all have to follow something. We all have to believe someone. We're all religious in some way. And so conversion will involve turning away from a previous God or a previous belief or a previous faith or religion or practice or whatever and embracing something new. In the case of Christianity, embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We leave behind the old and embrace the new. That's conversion. And so what did you leave behind when you converted to Christianity? You know, who was maybe your Simon the Magician? What or who amazed you, captivated you? What did you pay attention to before Jesus got a hold of you? Does it still sometimes compete for your attention now? Have you truly left behind your old loyalties for your new loyalty to Christ? Or maybe here, you're here and you're thinking, you know, nothing really had my attention or loyalty before. I've just always sort of believed, you know, maybe you were born in a Christian family. Well, then what other than Jesus today competes for your attention? Who or what amazes you, captivates you? Maybe some days a little bit more than Jesus does. Could be a politician, could be a journalist, an author, a thought leader, a pastor, a movie star, a director, an artist, a musician. You know, whether you've had a dramatic conversion experience or not, Who's your Simon the Magician today? Who's competing for your loyalty today? What do you need to consciously put in its place, submitted under the gospel of Christ? To what do you need to say, no, I converted away from you and to Christ? The Samaritans converted away from Simon the Magician, away from any other gods, into Jesus Christ. Now, when they converted to Christianity, uh, did you notice what they did? They got baptized. Verse 12, again, says that they believed and they were baptized, both men and women. And it's interesting that it explicitly points out that it's both men and women, right? Well, it's because uh, it's as a contrast to circumcision. You know, baptism is applied to both men and women. The sign of the covenant is becoming more inclusive in the new covenant era. It's applied to both men and women, not just men, as was the case with circumcision. And it's not just expanding 
uh, it's not just an expanding inclusivity with regards to gender, it's also an expanding inclusivity with regards to race and ethnicity. And that's what's going on with the apostles' visit here. You see, traditionally, Samaritans and Jews did not get along very well. That's why the parable of the Good Samaritan was so controversial, because Jews would not have expected the Samaritan to be the protagonist of that story. And so similarly, it's important here that Acts is emphasizing that the first place that the gospel is spreading after Jerusalem is Samaria, where Samaritans are from. And they receive the sign of the covenant, baptism, and they also receive the Holy Spirit. And did you notice that the Holy Spirit only comes when the apostles come and lay their hands on Samaritan converts? What's going on there? You know, I thought that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit happened immediately when someone converts. Well, what's going on is that this is a special moment in redemptive history. The gospel is leaving the geographic and ethnic center of Jews, Jerusalem, and moving to where the Gentiles are, to Samaria. And so a very real question that people would have had was, is the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the salvation from the God of Israel also for non-Jews, non-Israelites? Is the—are Gentiles going to be engrafted into this covenant the answer is yes. You know, and the the apostles themselves may have even been wondering that question. They had stayed in Jerusalem after all. But verse 14 says that when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John. And so they need to, the apostles, like, they want to see it for themselves. So they send Peter and John, and they arrive, and sure enough, they see it with their own eyes. The Samaritans have converted. They've received the gospel. And so the apostles prayed that they would receive the Holy Spirit, and they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And again, that's actually unusual in the course of Scripture. It only happens like that a couple of times. Typically, the Holy Spirit comes upon people as soon as they convert. But it's being emphasized here to the apostles, to the readers of Acts, that the gospel and the Holy Spirit is, in fact, for Gentiles too. It's beginning to go forth to the nations, and God wanted to impress that upon the apostles and the earliest Christians, especially to the Jewish Christians. They may have been tempted to think that Christianity was still really mostly about Jews and Israel, and that's a struggle we actually see persisting from time to time throughout the rest of Acts and in Paul's epistles. But right here, God is making it clear to them that Christianity is for the Gentiles, to even Samaritans. A great conversion is beginning to happen. Samaritans, Gentiles, are leaving behind their old gods, their old ways of life, whatever loyalties they held on to before, and they are believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're receiving the sign of the covenant. They're being baptized and receiving the Holy Spirit. Samaritans, Gentiles, are converting. Who might be like a Samaritan was to the apostles and the earliest Jewish Christians to you? Who is like a Samaritan to you? Who is someone that you could hardly believe would convert to Christianity. You know, Samaria receiving the word of God is proof that the gospel can convert anyone. And he converts anyone today, too. Or who is someone that you would hardly want to convert? You know, maybe a group of people or a specific person that you don't have a very high opinion of. Who's someone that you might not even want to convert? You know, the gospel going to Samaria is proof that the gospel is, in fact, for everyone. Men, Women, young, old, rich, 
poor, your ethnic or cultural group, and every other one. The gospel was for everyone in Acts 8, and it's for everyone today, too. It's even for Simon the magician. Verse 13, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Even Simon converted. Or did he? That takes us to our final point, correction. You know, a few years ago, my dad was at home just relaxing, trying to enjoy his day, minding his own business, when he got an alert from his bank on his phone that their checking account had gone negative, which was concerning, especially because he hadn't done anything. You know, he hadn't made any big withdrawals. And uh, there should have been more than enough to cover the normal expenses that they paid out of their checking account. And so he opened up his bank app to see what was going on. And to his horror, he saw that their checking accounts balance, their checking account balance wasn't just negative, it was negative $95 million. <laughs> there had been a $95 million withdrawal from his checking account, which not only sent his checking account negative, it actually instantly drained his savings account because of his overdraft protection. Obviously, this was a mistake because neither of my parents had withdrawn $95 million. And so my dad got on the phone with the bank and implored them to correct the mistake. And they did. It took a couple days, but they eventually did correct it. And it turns out what happened is that there was a hedge fund manager in New York City that was paying his taxes to the IRS, and his checking account number was one number different than my dad's. And so some of the bank somewhere had just made a typo. But thankfully, that mistake was corrected, and my parents got their $95 million back. <clears throat> in our passage, we read about a mistake being corrected, a mistake about the nature of the gospel. Simon the magician indicates that he believes the gospel of Jesus Christ that Philip has proclaimed. He says that he believes, and he even gets baptized. And eventually, Simon sees the Spirit given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, and he thinks, that's pretty cool. That's pretty amazing. I remember when everyone was pretty amazed and would pay attention to me and my magic. I wonder if they would pay attention to me again if I could do that. And so in verses 18 through 19, it says, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. He offers money to the apostles, asking for the power to be given to him so that he could also lay hands on people and give the Holy Spirit. And that was a big mistake. And so Peter rebukes him. Verses 20 through 23. May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. What a correction. I mean, Peter basically says, to hell with your money, Simon. You so misunderstand the grace of the gospel. You so misunderstand the gift of the Spirit that you clearly aren't saved. You may have professed faith. You may have said that you believed. You may have gotten baptized, but you clearly have neither part nor lot with us. 
You need to repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord that it is even possible that the intent of your heart can be forgiven. I mean, Simon has a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel, and Peter corrects it. And so what was Simon's misunderstanding? What is this correction? Well, the misunderstanding is likely multifaceted. On the one level, uh, Simon does not understand the grace of the gospel. And we can tell because he's trying to buy it. And it's, if it's something that you can buy, then it's not grace. This is essentially a form of salvation by works, salvation by money, salvation by paying. But Peter corrects him. You're wrong, Simon. You can't obtain a gift with money. It's a gift. It's not for sale. The Spirit is a gift of God freely given. You don't pay for it. But on another level, Simon has not left behind his old life as a magician who everyone paid attention to. He's trying to co-op Christianity and the Holy Spirit into his old way of life. He thinks that if only he could lay hands on people and give them the Holy Spirit and do signs and wonders like the apostles can, then he would have his crowd back. They would pay attention to him again. They would call him great again. But the Holy Spirit is not a trick that's for sale at some magician's convention. It's received by grace. It's a gift of God for people who realize that there's nothing that they can do to earn or deserve it. It's for people who have left behind all their old loyalties. They've repented of them. They've converted. They've fallen on their knees before the Lord. They've recognized their need for him. If Simon has a significant misunderstanding of the gospel and the spirit to the point that he cannot be considered truly a believer. So Peter corrects his misunderstanding, uh, but not to keep him out of the faith. He corrects Simon so that he will still come to faith. He tells him to repent. He tells him to pray for forgiveness. But what is Simon's response? Verse 24, And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. That might initially sound like he accepts Peter's correction, but not really. That's not really accepting the correction. Peter has told Simon that he himself needs to pray, to pray to the Lord in repentance, to pray to the Lord for forgiveness. But what does Simon say? Essentially, you can pray for me, but I'm not going to pray for me. He persists in his unbelief. He persists in refusing to leave behind his old loyalties and desires. He doesn't repent. He doesn't seek forgiveness. He doesn't accept Peter's correction. Have you accepted the gospel's correction? You know, how has the gospel corrected you? Because the gospel corrects everyone. No one comes to hear the good news of the gospel and thinks, Oh, perfect. This confirms all of my prior values, convictions, and beliefs. If that were the case, then you wouldn't need the gospel. But you do need the gospel because you are wrong sometimes. You were wrong about something. The gospel will correct you. You know, something that you loved, something that you desired, something that you valued, something that you were loyal to will be exposed as, at the very least, misprioritized, but possibly even as worthless. So what might this look like? You know, maybe to someone, 
Christianity seemed like a way to enhance their job or career or source of income. You know, maybe they were drawn to Christianity because joining a local church would expand their pool of potential clients or customers. But the gospel's implications are that Jesus has treated you as more important than himself. And so the implication of that is your fellow church members don't exist to enrich you. You exist to enrich your fellow church members. We treat others as more important than ourselves, just like Jesus has treated us as more important than himself. Or for someone else, you know, maybe Christianity seemed like a nice and safe way to isolate from an immoral and dangerous world. You know, the the gospel's implications are actually that we all contribute to the world's immorality and danger because we're sinners. And what's more, Jesus didn't isolate himself from this immoral and dangerous world. He entered into it so that he could save and purify it. And he made himself susceptible to its danger and ultimately was killed by it. And so an implication of that is that now Christians are called to do something similar, to leave Jerusalem, so to speak, and bring the joy of the gospel to the dangerous and immoral world. You know, what did the gospel correct in you? What does it continually correct in you? Because the gospel corrects everyone. If it doesn't, or if it's never corrected you, you might not understand the richness and the depth of the gospel. Let me close by looking back at Simon one more time. Simon used to captivate everyone. Everyone paid attention to him because of his magic tricks. That was his functional savior. It's what he needed to have purpose and meaning. It was a god to him, an idol, the attention that he got for his magic. But then everyone stopped paying attention to him and started paying attention to Philip. And then Philip was like, don't pay attention to me. Pay attention to Jesus and his gospel. And they did. They stopped paying attention to Simon and started paying attention to Jesus, and it crushed Simon. He had nothing now. What he lived and breathed for every day was taken from him, the attention from the crowds that his magic brought him. And so what did he do? He tried to get it back by pretending, essentially, to be a believer. He even got baptized, but when he tried to buy access to the Holy Spirit so that he could captivate everyone once again, he was ultimately exposed as a fraud. And so what did Simon miss about the gospel? What did Simon miss about Jesus? Now, the ultimate correction that Simon needed was that Jesus would pay attention to him. Jesus would be captivated by Simon. Jesus made Simon. He became a man. He died on a cross. He resurrected. He ascended up to heaven where he sits and pays attention to us. If Simon would just see that, if Simon would just value that more than the attention of the crowds, if Simon would just see that Jesus would pay attention to him, that Jesus would be captivated with him, it's the same for you. It's the same for all of us. Jesus is paying attention to you. Jesus is captivated with you. We aren't always captivated with Jesus. We don't always give him the attention that we should, but that doesn't change him. He's always paying attention to you. Jesus is captivated with you. How could he not be? Look at all that he did to get you. Jesus is captivated with you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you and thank you for your son and all that he has done to get us, to save us. Father, we confess 
that there are so many times in our life when our joy is incomplete. There are times where the gospel doesn't sink in that deep. There are times when our old loyalties creep back into the top spot in our life. Father, we pray that by your spirit, you would restore the joy of our salvation, that you would help us to raise Jesus back up to king of our lives. We thank you, Father, that you're gracious and merciful, that you're captivated with us even when we are imperfectly captivated with you. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen.